Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Ashley Murray Eifert was born on February 19, 1983. At the age of 19, Ashley was seven months pregnant with her first child and living in New Orleans, Louisiana. She loved dancing, playing softball, and marching in Mardi Gras parades. On January 9, 2003, Ashley left home to go pick up baby stuff in the Gentilly area of New Orleans from Nicole Johnson, a woman she met at the doctor's office during a prenatal visit. Nicole had recently lost her child, which is why she was donating the stuff to Ashley. Once Ashley was there, she got on the phone with her boyfriend, who was supposed to bring a truck over to help. However, she kept waiting and waiting on him, but he never showed up, which led to an argument over the phone. She then made the decision to leave, but unfortunately, her 1992 Ford Mustang wouldn't start. Nicole told Ashley's mother that after that, Ashley walked across the street to the Shell station and never returned and was never seen again. The events on that day came from Nicole and have never been corroborated by anyone else. Strangely, the address in the missing person report is in the 4500 block of DeMont Luzon Street, but there is no 4500 block. However, she went missing before Hurricane Katrina, so things could have changed since then. Even the detective who was looking into the case in 2017, 14 years after she disappeared, was confused about the location. There is no 4500 block of the Monsolison Street. I personally think an officer wrote the address down wrong. Another site has the address as 5217 DeMont Luzon Street, which is right around the corner from a gas station. It's not a shell station, but it could have been in 2003. Ashley's car then sat in front of Nicole's house for nine days before Ashley's parents discovered it while driving around looking for her. It was then towed because, as Nicole said, it wouldn't start. After going to the pound, it was checked for fingerprints. Her family feels like the New Orleans Police Department never took this case seriously, and by the time they bothered to get surveillance footage from the gas station, it had already been erased. Police have allegedly never interviewed Nicole Johnson or Ashley's boyfriend, Joseph Lewis Hill, aka Joe Hill Jr., and as of 2017, they were allegedly trying to track them down. One theory that has floated around is that Nicole Johnson was involved in her disappearance for the purpose of stealing her baby, who, if alive, would be 21 years old, while others believe her boyfriend may have been involved, who allegedly never helped search for her. There's also the possibility that neither one was involved and that she met with foul play while walking to the gas station. If only detectives had been involved way sooner and obtained the surveillance footage, it could have answered a lot of questions. I want to point out that as of 2015, there were 30 unidentified bodies from Hurricane Katrina. Could one of those be Ashley? 
Tragically, women in the U.S. who are pregnant or who have recently given birth are more likely to be murdered than to die from childbirth. A study by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence reported that domestic violence kills more pregnant women each year than any other cause. Sadly, as of 2023, Ashley has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Daphne Felicia Jones was born on July 16, 1976, and went to middle school in New Orleans before relocating to Washington, D.C., where she graduated high school. She then enrolled at the University of Maryland before moving back to New Orleans after her freshman year. Daphne had a love for languages, including Spanish, Vietnamese, Japanese, and French, and talked about one day living in a foreign country to utilize her language skills. At the age of 22, Daphne was a student at the University of New Orleans and was working part-time as a hostess at Brennan's restaurant. She was initially living in a dorm, but after learning she was pregnant, she moved into an apartment in the 5500 block of St. Anthony Street. Her boyfriend wanted her to have an abortion, but she refused. Her mother, Dr. Marla Oakes, then offered to help take care of her, so Daphne made plans to quit school and her job and return home to Maryland. She purchased a plane ticket and was scheduled to return on January 9, 1999. However, six days before the move, on January 3rd, she was expected to work one of her last shifts at the restaurant, but strangely never showed up. Prior to her shift, she had been with her grandmother, Ethel Clark, who dropped Daphne off at her apartment at 1.50 p.m. so she could get ready for work. Later that evening, when she was supposed to be at work, Daphne called her cousin upset, but it's unclear what she was upset about. After that, she was never heard from again. After going missing, her Aunt Helena convinced the landlord to let them into her apartment. Once inside, they found all the lights off, but the heater, television, and iron were still on. There was also food still lying out as if she left in a hurry. In hopes that Daphne would return one day, her father kept a bank account open in her name. Daphne's grandmother and parents have all since passed away, but they never stopped searching for their daughter. Sadly, as of 2023, Daphne has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Donna Gonzalez was born on August 29, 1964. At the age of 27, Donna had spent several years with the Trappistine Religious Order of Sisters in Iowa and had contemplated joining the order, but changed her mind and returned home to Louisiana. She then got a job as an insurance agent tasked with selling cancer policies door-to-door. -door. On April 7, 1992, Donna was working in Rain, Louisiana with a group of other agents. On that particular day, she went out alone after her boss decided she had received enough training. Around 3 p.m., she parked her blue 1982 Pontiac Bonneville along Devil's Alley, now called Gabriel's Alley. She had a scheduled appointment but would never make it. Before walking away from her car, she was seen taking off her pumps and putting on flat shoes. She then locked her pumps and purse in the trunk. After that, she walked to a nearby store, bought a soft drink, and then began knocking on the doors of businesses nearby. She was then seen returning to the alley where her car was, but after that, she vanished into thin air. 
When she failed to return home, her roommate called her family, who reported her missing. When her car was found, her purse and driver's license were in the trunk, but her car keys were nowhere to be found. A trucker came forward after seeing a flyer posted in Lafayette, Louisiana, and said he'd given Donna a ride from Bell, Colorado to Barstow, California. The trucker said that Donna spoke very little and only told him that she was headed to Los Angeles. This sighting stood out, however, because the trucker mentioned a beat-up brown briefcase that his passenger was carrying. A beat-up brown briefcase was the only other item missing from Donna's car besides her keys. Unfortunately, it was not possible to confirm the sighting. Investigators searched a garbage pit near rain by helicopter, foot, and with tracker dogs, but nothing was found. Police then became aware of another woman, Charmaine Latterade, who vanished six months after Donna did. Charmaine was last seen leaving a bar in nearby Franklin with Shannon LaBeach, a man she had met at her job in a food store. He eventually confessed to Charmaine's murder in 1997 and led police to her remains. Donna had met a man in a rain bar just a few days before she vanished, and police suspected that he might be the same man. However, the man Donna met has never been identified. Police even considered the possibility that a satanic cult took Donna. Supposedly, right before Easter, when she disappeared, is known as a satanic ritual period, plus she parked on Devil's Alley. I personally believe this is the least plausible theory. Her family, on the other hand, believes it's more plausible that she up and left for California in order to start a new religion. However, investigators believe she met with foul play on the day she vanished. Since there were no clues at the scene, they believe she may have gotten into a car with someone she knew. It was later determined that at least two men had been sexually harassing her. One of them was a married man, and the other wanted to marry Donna. While friends of Donna's pointed investigators to those men, they've never been declared suspects. Sadly, as of 2023, Donna has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Kiosha Marie Felix was born on April 8, 1997, and was nicknamed Red. Unfortunately, in 2012, because her mother was in prison, 15-year-old Kiosha, who had a one-year-old daughter, was living in a group home for teenage girls in Maison de Mer. Vicky, the director of the group home, described Kiosha as a very caring girl who was crazy about her daughter. On April 30, 2012, Kiosha got a weekend pass to visit her aunt, Patricia Andrus, in Doosan, Louisiana. After visiting her aunt Patricia's home, she was sadly never seen alive again. At first, she was considered a runaway. This wasn't helped by her aunt and 19-year-old cousin, Portia Felix, who claimed they had heard from Kiosha and that she was all right. After going missing, Kiosha's cell phone and Facebook usage stopped altogether. One sign that she didn't just simply run away was that she left her daughter behind, which her loved ones say she would have never done. Three months later, when investigators learned that her aunt and cousin had lied to them, they changed her status from runaway to missing. Authorities then charged four people in relation to her disappearance. First, her aunt's boyfriend, 43-year-old Leon Wilkerson Jr., was charged with sexually assaulting and kidnapping Kiosha. 
her Aunt Patricia was charged with improper supervision of a minor and accessory to sexual assault, and her cousin Portia was charged with obstruction of justice. Kiosha had allegedly told her aunt that Leon sexually assaulted her. When Patricia confronted Leon about the allegation, he denied it, and she chose not to report it to the police. Leon's brother, Ronald Wilkerson, was also charged with kidnapping in Kiosha's case because he was discovered to have Kiosha's cell phone after she vanished. The Dusan Police Department was originally handling Kiosha's case, with Lieutenant Gerald Credor, the Assistant Chief of Police, in charge. However, in September 2012, Credor was removed from the investigation, suspended from duty, and terminated. He allegedly made two unlawful arrests in Kiosha's disappearance, conducted illegal searches and seizures, and provided false testimony. After that, the Lafayette Parish Sheriff's Office took over the investigation. After Credor was taken off the case, all charges against the Wilkerson brothers and Kiosha's aunt and cousin were dropped, with the district attorney saying the evidence against them was mostly unsubstantiated hearsay. The two men allegedly lost their jobs due to the accusations and arrest and sued for compensatory and punitive damages, since the arrests were not based on probable cause. The lawsuits were eventually settled in 2015 for an undisclosed amount. Despite this, many believe that the former lieutenant was doing what he could to find Kiosha and get justice. Investigators would eventually receive a promising lead when a man walked into an AT&T store in Lafayette, Louisiana, and bought a SIM card. That SIM card was later used with Kiosha's password. Unfortunately, they've never been able to identify the man. It's also interesting that the lot where her aunt lived is now empty, with the mobile home having been removed. What happened to the mobile home? Did investigators ever check it for evidence? Sadly, as of 2023, Kiosha has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Nanette Watson Crentel was born on July 26, 1967, and later attended Archbishop Chappelle High School in Metairie, Louisiana. At the age of 49, Nanette was living on Philip Smith Road in rural Lacombe, Louisiana, with her husband Steve, who was the local fire chief at the time. Friday, July 14, 2017, started as a typical day, with Nanette making her husband Steve lunch before he left for work. At 10.03 a.m., Nanette called her local Kmart pharmacy to refill a prescription, and then at 1.30 p.m., she placed a call from her cell phone. This was the last contact she made with anyone outside her home. An hour later, a 911 call was placed by a neighbor to report a fire at the Crentel's home. The fire department arrived and began putting out the blaze, which had basically engulfed the house. When they entered the home, they found Nanette lying on her bedroom floor, face up, and burned beyond recognition. It became clear to the investigators that the fire had been intentionally set. Inside, they found the charred remains of Harley, Nanette's chihuahua, along with the bodies of Nanette's beloved kittens. From the evidence collected, investigators believed all three pets died of smoke inhalation. They also determined that someone had doused at least one of the three pets with gasoline before starting the fire. About a week later, the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office released a shocking twist in the case. Not only had Nanette been burned up in the fire, but her actual cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. 
At first, investigators were treating this as a suicide since two handguns were found near her body. However, five days later, ballistic tests proved that neither weapon killed her, so police began looking for another weapon at the crime scene. Around 30 guns were ultimately found in the ruins, but none matched the gun that killed Nanette. The coroner determined that Nanette was murdered before the fire was set because he couldn't find soot in her lungs. However, the sheriff released a statement saying they could not support the coroner's conclusions. After public outrage, the sheriff recanted his statement and claimed his officers never stopped investigating the case as a homicide. Continue to work this case tirelessly and aggressively as a homicide, and we have since day one. Once law enforcement was finally back into investigating it as a homicide, they reviewed an email that Nanette had sent to her father at the end of June, which contained an image of an unknown individual on her property. In this email, Nanette told her father, this was the day I got out to get the mail and looked up and this man was walking toward me. He just looks creepy. Nanette told her father that she felt she was being followed. She appeared to have been scared for her safety long before she was murdered. A potential suspect is her husband's brother, Brian, an ex-con who had allegedly threatened to set the house on fire. He also destroyed his mother's car and threatened to sexually assault Nanette. However, surveillance footage showed he was at home on the day of the murder. The house did have nine surveillance cameras, but the person who started the fire poured a cellarant on the digital video recorder, basically destroying the possibility of ever recovering the data. Investigators also looked into Nanette's husband, Steve, as the two had been having marital problems following Steve's affair with another woman. Although he was working at the fire station at the time of the fire, he has since resigned from his post after they discovered he had had inappropriate relations with at least two different staff members. While Nanette's family said she wanted to end the relationship, Steve claimed they had worked past their issues. Two months after the murder, the sheriff said that Steve was cleared as a suspect. Family members have continued to criticize the investigation. Even a federal agent by the name of Jerry Rogers criticized the sheriff's department in emails he sent to Nanette's family. He was then arrested by the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office for criminal defamation, but the Louisiana Attorney General chose not to prosecute him. Acting Sheriff Randy Smith published an open letter to the public and the media shortly afterward via St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office explaining their decision. The letter stated that the police were struggling to cope with misinformation about the murder online and that the case had been weaponized for political reasons against Smith's forthcoming re-election campaign. It goes on to claim that Rogers was uncooperative and threatened to take his own life when the cops tried to arrest him. In 2022, it was revealed that an FBI agent had asked for a criminal probe into the police department, alleging a possible police conspiracy. Rogers then sued the sheriff's office, and a judge ruled that he was illegally arrested. Unfortunately, the actions by the sheriff's office have done nothing but hurt the case, and as of 2023, Nanette's murder remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.